This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture and I'm Juliet Jacobs. The International Day for Biological Diversity is taking place later this month on the 22nd of May. And the theme for this year is Building a Shared Future for All Life. And much like this very series by Diversity for Malaysia on Earth Matters, the theme was chosen to continue building momentum and support for the post-2020 Global Biodiversity Framework to be adopted at the upcoming UN Biodiversity Conference or COP15. So on today's episode for this month, month, we want to tackle the real impacts of biodiversity loss on communities and discuss how changes in ecosystem and ecosystem services affect livelihoods, income, perhaps even migration and more. And joining me for this discussion are Julian Hyde, the General Manager of Reef Check Malaysia, Dr. Julian Ui, a marine ecologist and a senior lecturer at the University of Malaya, and Effendi Yang Amri, a coral reef ecologist from the University of Malaya and the President of the Malaysian Society of Marine Sciences. Welcome all of you. How are you today? Good, thank you. Good. Good, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me, everyone. Really good to have you on the show. So we've all spoken before on this show uh, about various things that you guys do. So, of course, there's Team Sea Habitats, which Jillian and Effendi are part of. Reef Check, you're no stranger to this show, of course. But we want to tackle some big picture uh, topics today, right? Basically, biodiversity loss. We know it has many consequences, not just for the environment, but also for, for human beings, right? And at so many different levels, we are, as we say, part of this really complex um, planetary web of life you know, that sustains us all. And we, we are the ones, right, who have been accelerating this biodiversity loss. But I don't know whether people realize, you know, the consequences of that. Maybe you want to help explain. Um, anybody want to take that first? Maybe Julian? Yes. Um, you, it, there's something in the media every day. I was just reading an article about how American appetite for hamburgers is causing deforestation in the Amazon. <laughs> I mean, how does that work, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so are we talking about ecosystem losses here, biodiversity losses? You know, what exactly is the issue? And perhaps it's that very complication, very complicated situation that, that causes the confusion and, and causes people to kind of disconnect. It's like, oh, it's too complicated. Somebody else will deal with that. We have two eminent scientists from Malaysia here to, with us who can explain the ecosystem side of it, but we lose sight of the human side, I think, sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, Julian, Afendi, anything you want to add? Um, I I think that um, with conservation, you know, picking up in Malaysia, especially uh, in our marine conservation circle, uh, a lot of the focus has been on getting good data from scientists. But the science is actually getting more and more solid throughout the years. And um, I, I feel fairly confident that we've got a good handle on what's been happening around us in terms of the science knowledge. But I really feel that if we do any conservation without introducing the human element and without actually knowing what the effects of biodiversity loss on humans, you know, in a tangible or intangible way, I feel if we don't have that element in, then it's very hard to actually do meaningful conservation. So I think conservation without the human element, it's not very meaningful. And we need to make sure that we have that component in conservation as well as in any science research that we do. Mm -hmm. I think it was a very recent Malaysia Keening article uh, where you were quoted, uh, Julian, I mean, you were featured, Julian, and basically you said there's a very big separation between scientists and the public, right? That And, and that, is a, that is a huge issue as well. Yes, that is. I think it's partly, partly the case that 
we find sometimes scientists find it very hard to articulate and to express the science in an accessible way. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, I, I see improvements. You know, I think a lot of scientists are heading towards uh, being communicators as well. But I think we need to move a little faster there. I think we have a lot of uh, important work done by scientists, but a lot of it is just not reaching the public in a way that captures their imagination and in a way that makes them feel that, hey, this biodiversity loss, this impacts, that's going to be on me, you know, that's going to affect me and my family. I think we're, we're maybe, maybe we're not articulating that well enough, as well as I think it's partly a case of the Malaysian public, um, maybe not wanting to put in the work to actually think a little deeper mm-hmm. and longer and harder <laughs> about complicated issues when it comes to conservation. Mm-hmm. Afendi, do, do you feel the same way? Do you think that like many Malaysians perhaps sort of perceive biodiversity in maybe a limited way, perhaps in a superficial way? Um, I, I have to agree to that because most, I, I when I talk to my friends and I, when I give public talks, um, the most of the people uh, that receives it well is our colleagues, the scientist colleagues and people that loves nature. Mm-hmm. But uh, to get to the big mass of uh, the public in Malaysia is, is quite hard because biodiversity is quite hard for them to imagine, especially when we're talking about marine biodiversity. Mm-hmm. If you're talking about tigers and elephants, people can still imagine them. But when you talk about corals, seagrass, uh, and things in the water, it's hard for them to imagine because they're not, they, they don't spend most of their lives in the water or near the water. So to, to tell them that this biodiversity, especially marine biodiversity, is very important, it's quite hard to reach them unless we bring them to the fish markets, maybe. <laughs> then they'll see that, yeah, fish, food, I, I need this. So, uh, and I think that is a, one of the biggest uh, challenges and also the opportunities for us to actually tell the public that actually the fish that you eat that you buy for the markets are actually very is all connected to our biodiversity in the oceans. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I mean that's why we have all three of you here. We want to get that message out, and of course, as Jul- uh, Julian said, I've started already. As Julian said, <laughs> uh, we've got two uh, eminent scientists here with us, and Julian, of course, you've done so much of work in this field as well. Let's talk a little bit about the loss of biodiversity from you know what you guys have been experiencing or observing through your work. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about the role of the destruction of habitat and how that actually relates uh, to the loss of biodiversity. Um, uh, Gillian or or anyone, sorry, Julian, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think the best example, the most precise direct example of this I've heard recently was actually some work that Gillian's doing in Johor at the moment, uh, visiting a community there and asking them about their interaction with with the ecosystems around them. You don't use that language with them, obviously, because it's inaccessible. But you know that's the that's the way we we, did, we would describe it. Gillian, talk talk about the people you met down there and what they were saying, because that is the most the most recent and really this is impacting people right now today. Example. Sure. Um, I'll start with uh, back in two thousand five. We did a dugong seagrass project, um, and when uh, back then we found a lot of seagrass meadows everywhere, you know, 
nice dugong feeding trails, um, lots of reports about dolphins and dugongs and turtles everywhere. And now, years later, when we go back to do this project at the University of Malaya with our reef check as well as with dialogue, um, we found that a lot of the meadows that we had surveyed previously are all gone. Hmm. Uh, like bare ground or only maybe patches of seagrass here and there, you know. Mm. And we spoke to the locals uh, in those villages. Um, and what they said was, yes, um, it's disappeared. You know, people, for instance, in um, on the western side of the river uh, said that it's disappeared because of reclamation. Um, they've tried to replant it, but it wasn't successful. And we asked, so why did you, why did you want to replant seagrass? They say, well, because there used to be a lot more fish. So we used to be able to walk out to the meadow and just glean. You know, gleaning is where you, the activity of going out onto a, a coral reef or mangrove or seagrass meadow and just pick, taking things by hand, whether it's cockles or crabs, you know. Um, so they said that their gleaning activities had been greatly reduced. And all the villages we went to, you know, uh, on the eastern and western side, from Prigi Aceh to Belumpo and all, the villagers said the same thing. When there was a lot more seagrass, we had a lot more fish and we had a lot more seafood, a lot more products, you know, from marine snails, gastropods and molas that we could collect. Now there's hardly anything. And uh, some of them also said they thought that the water quality had changed. They said Aekoto dirty water, the water has become dirty. And this alludes to the pollution that has been happening there in the last few years. Um, so there you see, you know, yeah. the locals, the local villagers have said that this has affected the way that they eat, you know, and it, this is not just about income generation. They're, they're not going out there to glean to actually sell it. They're going out there to glean to get food for themselves and their families. So this is about food security. It's not about income generation. And I think that's a very important point to make when it comes to the loss of these seagrass meadows, at least for the Johor River estuary. Mm-hmm. And and that leads back to what we said, uh, what I said earlier that I mean these sorts of loss of biodiversity can also then lead to forced migration in that sense. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, we're seeing it. Um, we're seeing people moving off the islands. Um, and it's a mixture of things. Is it loss of biodiversity? Is it loss of uh, habitat? Is it changing economic conditions? You know, so one of the problems we deal with, apart from the problem of communicating this complicated topic to you know the layman, is it's it's very complexity. Is it's a whole bunch of things. Yeah. Um, Mantanani Island in Sabah is losing population. You know, there's a, the young people still on the island. There's the older people still on the island. Other people are moving off the island because there's no jobs because food is becoming more scarce. Why is the food becoming more scarce? Because we're damaging the coral reefs. Do we care about the coral reefs? No, no, no. There's always been fish in the sea. There always will be fish in the sea. I mean, I don't know how many times I've heard that. <laughs> and yet, if you get a bit more targeted with questions, people will then start to admit, oh, yeah, the fish are getting smaller. We have to go further for our catch. So, you know, for, for the average man, this, this is a different question of we need to protect the biodiversity. We need to protect the habitat. Uh, and, and that's, like I said, perhaps that's part of uh, the, the, the problem that we just, it's very difficult to communicate it to people. You must save your seagrass beds, otherwise your your cockles and mu- your mussels will disappear. Mm-hmm. Um, connecting that to a message about biodiversity is very difficult. 
Okay, but that's what we want to try and encounter. Um, we're just going to go for one quick break. When we come back, let's talk a little bit more about coral reefs. And um, well, I mean, we all know that coral reefs uh, provide billions of dollars in ecosystem services. Let's talk about, you know, some of the impacts of the loss of that. I'm speaking today to Julian Hyde, General Manager of Reef Check Malaysia, Dr. Julian Wee, Marine Ecologist and Senior Lecturer at the University of Malaya, and Effendi Yang Amri, a Coral Reef Ecologist at the University of Malaya and President of the Malaysian Society of Marine Sciences. It's another episode of Biodiversity for Malaysia. We're talking about how biodiversity loss is our loss. We'll have more after this quick break. You're listening to Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. Another episode of Biodiversity for Malaysia. We're talking about how biodiversity loss is our loss. And we're doing this, of course, looking towards the Convention of Biological Diversity, the post-2020 framework process. We're doing this also because it's International Day of Biological Diversity at the end of this month. And we're focusing on the theme of building a shared future for all life. And, you know, biodiversity loss will affect all life as uh, as we've been laying out. So um, let's talk a little bit about coral reefs. I mean, that's something that um, all of you work uh, very closely with on monitoring and the rehabilitation. Of course, through through your work, uh, there's Team C Habitats, there's, um, of course, reef checks, so many things. Uh, Avendi, maybe you want to help me tackle this. I mean, through through all your years of work, uh, you know, in this field, uh, what sort of loss are you witnessing and how is that coming to impact human health, human well-being and all of that? Um, at, at the moment, uh, we globally, we have lost about maybe about 30% of our coral reefs. In Malaysia, we're quite lucky in, in a sense that uh, our reefs are quite resilient. And we have been, uh, some of our coral reef areas have been identified as bright spots uh, in, in the whole world. There's only six. They have just a recent publication has said that there's six areas in the world that could be a bright spot. And Southeast Peninsula Malaysia is one of them. <laughs> so there are some bright spots in Malaysia. Uh, but uh, for coral reefs, it, it, uh, one of the most important for the communities is about fish, about jobs. And the reefs are deteriorating because of the global climate change mainly, but also because of local threats like overfishing and whatnot and destruction of our reefs. Um, we have the, the global estimate of our ecosystem services value of a one kilometer square of coral reef is actually about 35 million USD per year. Mm. Uh, that's, the, that's the most recent estimate, but this is a global estimate. So in Malaysia, we have about 1,600 kilometers square so if you, of coral reef. So it, as an ecosystem service value, we have about maybe about 70 billion USD a year Per, uh, of, of reefs or the value of our reefs and if we destroy it and if the, the reefs are destroyed is the, the, we will lose a, a lot of the fishing or the food for the locals and it's been estimated that for in the coral triangle area which we are in, Malaysia is in uh, we are projected to lose by 2050 about 60 to 70 percent of our reefs because of global warming and whatnot. Mm. And therefore, we will be losing about 50% of fish diversity as well, once we lose the corals, the coral reef diversity. Uh, I have to backtrack a bit just to explain is because certain coral reef species will harbor certain species of fish. Okay. So, if, so that means if we have a lot of 
coral species. We have a lot of coral fish species. And some of the coral reef fish species are for food. So therefore, if we lose the coral diversity, we lose the diversity of fish and some of our fish species that we eat. So yeah, so we are, so the projection at the moment is quite scary. Uh, and uh, we might be losing a lot of our fish that we eat and also for, and basically it's jobs for the fishermen. And this will cause a uh, social disruption in certain areas. And, and some of these fishing communities will, if the fish is no longer there, they will have to move out. Like what uh, Julian was saying before, There's, we are seeing in Mantanani and some, several other areas where the fishermen and, and, and the community is now, they have to move out from the, like the traditional areas. They're coming uh, into cities and whatnot or other, other areas. So there, there's a social disruption there. Mm. I mean, it's very, I mean, they always say it's often the most vulnerable is the most marginalized populations that are going to be affected, uh, I guess, first and foremost, right, by this biodiversity loss and uh, subsequent, uh, the consequences, right? Yeah. Um, yes. the, the people that are eating out of the, Markets that, that are using markets a lot, you know, the the, the lower economic uh, layers, um, they are the ones who are living most precariously. Uh, look at Mantanani, the villages there, beautiful island, very nice traditional uh, community, fishing community, who by habit build their houses very close to the beach, mm -hmm. um, and those are getting beaches are getting eroded away. The last storm a few weeks ago, 10, 10 houses were semi destroyed. Oh, uh, and you know, quite a, quite a large, a very large volume of sand was was washed away. Uh, but I think this is one of the confusing things because somebody's going to say, "Well, you're not talking about biodiversity now; you're talking about climate change." Climate change, change. yeah. Right? I was just about and to when say. Effendi was talking just now, I was thinking, "Hey, he's talking about coral reefs, which is habitat, not biodiversity." So we 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 even even amongst ourselves, you know, the the vocabulary can become. A little bit confusing, and, and we 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 talk across each other. Uh, I'm I'm they're, they're both ecologists. I'm a kind of an ecologist, but we look at habitat issues. Uh, biodiversity is only something that we started to think about as Reefcheck Malaysia in recent years. We were more interested in the habitat. Um, yes, it's a very biodiverse habitat, but it was habitat and the impacts of local communities and fishing and pollution and sedimentation and climate change on that habitat, not the biodiversity. And I think we're realizing now that it, it, it lose the biodiversity is the habitat. It's what makes up the habitat. You know, all the, as, as Effendi said, the different coral species mm. affects the different fish species. Mm. And, okay, they all live in a reef, but they're all part of the biodiversity. So, how do we kind of tie all of that together and develop a convincing message for the man on the street? As Effendi said, it's getting scary. I know, and we all know, but the man on the street probably doesn't know because. He's more interested in reading about Simon Cowell and the latest round of X Factor or whatever they call it these days. Showing my age. <laughs> showing, your, showing your age there, yes. And also, um, I think, allegiance to the uh, to, to your where you came from. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, so, what, I mean, it's perfectly clear what you're saying, though, that we cannot halt the biodiversity crisis by working in isolation. And, I mean, all of it, I mean, the climate crisis, the biodiversity uh, loss crisis, all of those are interconnected and it's going to come to affect, as you guys have been saying, uh, human health, human well-being, and basically how we move forward pretty much. Right, how we live our lives in the future. 
how are you guys tackling it? I mean, you guys work together on a lot of um, uh, projects together. I know uh, you've just started one over in Johor. Uh, that's working on seagrasses, am I correct, uh, Jilim? Yes, that's the one that's focused on seagrasses, um, where uh, we are actually trying to bring uh, seagrass conservation and, and this idea about, you know, uh, habitats being important and their loss impacting humans and how that ties into to biodiversity as a whole. Mm. Uh, We're trying to bring that to the public by um, bringing people into the field. Uh, We're starting out with uh, Dialogue, um, uh, this company called Dialogue who's funding us and uh, as well as the Maikase Foundation. Um, and we are bringing their people out to, to show them what, an, what is the experience like in a seagrass meadow? So what are the creatures that live there? So they get this direct experience themselves. Plus, we help them become citizen scientists, which is something that uh, we've always wanted to do. And that's why we teamed up with Reef Check Malaysia, because Reef Check Malaysia has been really um, advocating for citizen science, uh, previously with coral reefs, and now with us uh, in seagrass meadows, because we believe that uh, conservation with conservation you can't just target one ecosystem everything is connected so seagrass uh, mangroves coral reefs we need to attack it from all angles so uh, this project involves us actually working with members of the community members of the industry to become citizen scientists and in that way uh, get them excited about the health of their ecosystems uh, and empower them you know empower them so that they feel that hey we can also look out for for our ecosystems and we can provide data and work with scientists to actually take care of ecosystems, habitats and marine biodiversity in general. So for me, I'm really excited about that project. And, and I think it, it demonstrates one of the ways that we need to work more effectively is instead of trying to address biodiversity as a whole, because that, that's just too big a topic, that's, that's never going to get any traction to the again to the average man on the street so go find some people who have a vested interest in an ecosystem or a, a, a portion of biodiversity and work on a very local level perhaps that's where the sort of conservation work that we're doing needs to go in the future it means we're going to have an awful lot of little projects around the place and we, there needs to be more of us to manage those little projects but it's like trying to convince the general public about the need to to, to protect biodiversity is is a, is a difficult challenge. It's a big challenge, but working with a community on a local level and explaining to them why their resource let's not refer to biodiversity their resource is declining doesn't matter to them why, uh, but they need to learn how to look after it better. And part of that is helping them to understand how reliant they are on it. Um, you know, there's an old saying, you know, people won't protect something that they don't understand and love, right? Mm -hmm. um, we've we've had some success with coral reefs on the islands we work on, on Tierman and Mantanani. People are understanding more about the reefs on Tierman now. In the same way that Gillian's teaching people to monitor seagrass beds in, in Johor, we're teaching people on the islands to monitor their coral reefs. And as this, I mean, if, if I tell people about the coral reefs on their islands, they're like, oh, he's an outsider, he doesn't know anything. But if it's somebody from the Kampong says, I've just been diving and I have looked at our coral reefs and we have some problems, that's a much stronger message. So perhaps one of the one of the issues we need to address is more localized on the ground, field-based conservation is, is, a, is a better way to talk to people about the importance of biodiversity, of nature, let's say nature, because they understand nature better. 
so we've got to get our, our terms right and, and we've got to get the scale right. And I think we've heard a lot about how we have so much to learn from the local villagers, right, when it comes to all sorts of uh, conservation. Of course, in this case, marine conservation. Um, how do you guys, uh, Afendi, maybe you want to talk about how you work with the community to to uh, to protect the reefs in the areas that you work in? Um, one of the communities that I work with looking uh, at corals is actually in the in in the Tebrao Straits between Johor between Johor and Singapore, mm -hmm. which actually the, the the corals are in really really bad shape. So, but I've been working with them to tell them what okay, even though the corals are not really good anymore there, but it's still there and it can provide fish, and they've been catching a lot of. Uh, uh, garupa fish, which is mainly uh, associated with reefs. So even though there's not a very nice reef area in the uh, uh, reef, uh, the coral reef there in the area, uh, but still they're catching good fish. And uh, I've been talking about them that, yeah, you need to still look at corals because there are corals there. That's why you're still catching the garupas and uh, showing them what, what corals are. And uh, But it's been destroyed by sedimentation and unplanned uh, or not very good uh, coastal development uh, and they begin to understand uh, and uh, these are the group which is called Club Alami uh, which works with the fishermen and, and the youth there and looking at uh, corals, mangroves and seagrass in that area um, and also I, I, I would tell them okay because then because they don't have access to journals and whatnot, mm. scientific journals. I tell them that actually in Malaysia, more than a million people is protected on the coast by coral reefs itself, actually. So they are part of that mil a million plus people that has been protected. So we need to have good coral reef systems for coastal protection and whatnot and for their kampongs. And like what Julian was saying before this, some of the areas which is is, is was previously was behind good coral reefs and when the coral reefs die they will have a lot of coastal erosion and things happening there so uh slowly but surely uh bit by bit we hope to get more people to understand this Okay. And I guess, you know, the other thing, of course, that's coming up at the end of this year, or what we're hoping will come up soon is the is, is COP15, right? The UN Biodiversity Conference. Um, a lot a lot hinges on that, I suppose. Um, do you think there's enough of this sort of knowledge, you know, being discussed at these sorts of talks? You know, it's, as, as I think Gillian said, you know, a lot of the scientists are the ones talking. Are we putting enough of this uh, indigenous knowledge, local community knowledge into these talks? Are they being heard enough, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say? Oh, that's an interesting question. The In the lead up to COP15, uh, there was recently a, a long meeting in Geneva of mm. the parties to the, to the Biodiversity Convention. And one of the elements that came out of that was a strong call, uh, particularly in uh, Eastern Asian and Pacific countries, for, for a much greater voice for indigenous communities, indigenous and local communities. IPLCs, Indigenous people and local communities. Quite surprising, right, right towards the end of this very, very long and complicated process, uh, this, this voice became much clearer from the Pacific Islands, from around Southeast Asia and, and Africa and South America as well. But um, So I think the answer to the question is no. And I think that links back to the vulnerable communities uh, where they, people are living on small islands uh, and they are facing challenges from climate changes, biodiversity loss, habitat loss, uh, but nobody's really listening to them you know, because all of the damage is being done, forgive me, but by the Western developed nations with 
we're the ones responsible for the carbon in the air. Uh, we're the response, ones responsible for previous deforestation problems, overfishing. Um, the European Union fleets are still overfishing in African waters. What are the Africans going to do for food? Well, they turn into pirates and start hijacking oil tankers because we've taken all of their food. So, you know, you can't separate biodiversity from impacts on humans and human communities, whether on a very micro scale like in the Johor River or on a macro scale like uh, problems with, with piracy in Africa. Um, but I think, yes, the, there is definitely a growing voice for a stronger, uh, stronger indigenous communities uh, participation in the event. Um, mm -hmm. I found the whole thing very frustrating because it seems like, you know, this this whole target 30 by 30 to protect 30% of the of the ecosystems. I've spoken with the Fendi about this. There is scientific backing for the idea of protecting 30%, but it's the way that some people are pushing the concept on everybody else and you have to accept it. It's like, right. it doesn't make sense for us, you know, because that's not how our ecosystem, marine ecosystems are, are laid out. So why do we want to sign up for a target that is meaningless to us? Um, so there's a lot of problems with the COP process. But it's a very important process, unfortunately. Well, not unfortunately. It is a very important process uh, as it stands, right? It, it is a very important process. And the, and the, the end documentation is very important. The, mm. the, we, you know, we had the 2011 to 2020 years decade of biodiversity uh, during which we the, the Aichi targets were the key 20 biodiversity targets, 10 and 11, uh, targets 10 and 11 related to marine biodiversity specifically. There was a target of 10% of marine areas in protected areas. Uh, Malaysia reached 5%, globally I think it was 3%. Uh, so that was one set of targets we missed. And now we're going from 10 to 30, <laughs> having only reached 50% of the original target. So it, we need a bit more nuance a bit more local knowledge. So, okay, thirty percent is scientifically acceptable. It's 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 it can be it can be defended, but thirty percent of what? That's the question we're asking. Thirty percent of our whole EEZ, which is mainly a barren sandy bottom, or thirty percent of our coastal ecosystems, where communities like Johor and like uh, FND's Club, Club Alami, those are the areas that people use and rely on, and those are perhaps the areas where we should focus our protective efforts. Mm -hmm. Okay. Sorry, uh, Gillian and Effendi, anything you want to add to that? Yes, um, if I may. Um, I, I really think that Indigenous communities have um, bare ecological knowledge throughout the generations that really can complement science knowledge. And we should be learning from them, you know, in the way we protect and conserve um, biodiversity, seagrass meadows, quarries and mangroves. Um, and in this project, in this new project that we are doing in the in the Sungai Johor estuary, um, part of the longer term plan is to work with indigenous communities in that area um, to learn from them, you know, to learn about how the ecosystem has changed, how they have coped with that changes, and what their vision is to move things forward. Um, so. That I, I'm optimistic that if we start having conversations with the local communities as well as indigenous communities, I think we might be able to find a way of, you know, finding a balance between having to develop as well as, as uh, you know, um, moderating the effects of development on the local communities. So, so 
Right now, we are working with uh, citizen scientists, people from the industry, members of the public, but really, ultimately, the dream is to work with indigenous communities in that area because really they bear all the genera generational knowledge of the ecosystems that I think um, it's time for us to start to try to understand and dig into and possibly document as well. So we will be working with uh, anthropologists in the future uh, who will you know, be able to be the bridge uh, between us, those of us in science and indigenous communities so that we can work in a way that is equal and um, fair to everyone. So I'm really optimistic about that. Okay, I'm really happy to hear that. And Afendi, anything you wanted to add to that? Yeah, so I wanted to tell you two stories, actually, with, when I was working with the local communities. One is the club Alami Youth. Uh, is when, when I first went there, I said, okay, this place won't have corals. This one will have corals. And then they'll just come back to me, no, no, you're wrong. Actually, this place has corals and this one doesn't. <laughs> so they will show me, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, all my theory has gone wrong. And then they know the area very well. And the other thing that happened also, another story was that in Pulau Tinggi, when the coral, the mass coral bleaching was happening in 2010, uh, I was in Pulau Tinggi and I and I was looking at the corals all white. And then I just told one of the makcits there in the kampo, uh, uh, is, uh, we, call, we call her Matsu. So, Matsu, your corals are all going to die. So you have to be prepared. And then she just tell me, no, no, don't worry. They always go white uh, around this, this time of the year. They'll survive. So then a <laughs> few months later, I came back and I found out, yeah, she was right. The corals oh. did survive. So, and I thought it was going to die. So <laughs> I'm <need> go. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the local communities, the indigenous communities, they know because they're there 24 seven. And we as scientists, we are there like once or maybe four times a year. Mm -hmm. uh, and they know things that are happening. So we need to be talking to them and discussing with them and, uh, and learning from them uh, what they're seeing, what they're observing. And I, and I do believe that if we can collect all these uh, stories from them, it, we can learn a lot uh, from the local communities and indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. I think it goes back to what Gillian said, right? A lot of it is not documented, right? So therefore, it's not taken seriously in that sense, right? By perhaps, not you guys, but maybe the larger part of the scientific community, perhaps. I don't know. Um, yeah. I'm just thinking that the National Policy on Biodiversity um, talks a lot about mainstreaming biodiversity, mm -hmm. which means generally including it into the, the country's systems, right? So that all planning authorities understand the need to protect biodiversity and coastal development agencies understand it. So when they talk about mainstreaming, they're really talking about getting it into planning and public systems and also educating the general public about it. And I'm, I'm, in, I'm interested in what Fendi was, and Jillian is saying, that there's, these, there's lots of local knowledge. These local people down on the ground, they don't need to be mainstreamed, as, as it were. They, they've got this knowledge already. So what's missing? Right. What? Why? Why are we? If all of these local people have this local knowledge, and I have no question that they do, why are we still getting it wrong? So, what level is it that we should be pitching our effort to support these local communities and support? You know, Gillian wants to go and work with them, and that's great. But how do we get support from further up so that we stop the coastal development that's causing damage in the first place? Mm -hmm. you know, what level of government do we have to get through to? Uh, and, and I think that linking back, sorry, a bit of a, an obvious segue, back to the COP process, we have to have a framework, and it's called the post-2020 biodiversity framework. 
So we need a framework in which decisions can be made at national level uh, so that we can then protect things at local level uh, and, and working with the local communities then make that whole thing work for them. Because at the end of the day, they're the ones that rely most directly on this resource. Mm-hmm. So if we need to find a way to link them. It's just it's very complicated. But to put it mildly, right? <laughs> Slightly complicated. Um, yeah. But I guess, you know, d- despite all these sorts of existing challenges uh, in protecting biodiversity, not just locally, but also worldwide, uh, maybe just, uh, we're, we're running out of time, but maybe just to conclude, what makes you hopeful uh, for the future? Julian, you want to go first? What makes me hopeful for the future? I think men have, human society has shown itself to be adaptable and inventive. They can find solutions. Unfortunately, we, we keep leaving it very late, right? Yeah. But we do find those solutions. I'm thinking of, for example, the agricultural revolution in the 60s, where you know people with the world's population of 3 billion, and we could barely feed them. And by the 90s, there was 6 billion, and we were feeding them easily. So we find these solutions. And there are probably technological solutions coming on. Electric-powered cars, right? Uh, so it's, you know renew- renewable energy is going to re- reduce, re- resolve the carbon problem, hopefully. Can we get around to it a little bit more more quickly, please? A little bit sooner rather than waiting till it's like crisis. <laughs> Could I agree with you more? Uh, Julian, how about you? You want to say something about nature-based solutions? I don't know, since Julian said something about technological solutions. Yes. Um, well, I have something to say. Well, not just about nature-based solutions, but um, something slightly beyond that. I think I'm hopeful uh, because I see more cases of um, people working across disciplines, you know, the boundaries between disciplines nowadays. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I, so I see social scientists working with scientists, working uh, with uh, lawyers, you know, people from the legal profession, policymakers, and I also see a lot of uh, crossovers and uh, collaborations between NGOs, environmental NGOs, as well as with scientists and policymakers. So that wasn't the case a decade ago, but I see a lot of crossovers now and a lot more um, of people reaching out, you know, a lot more people acknowledging that conservation doesn't just involve them working in their one discipline, you know, but it involves them crossing over and working with people outside their disciplines. Um, so I'm hopeful because of that, because I think um, conservation, environmental conservation, uh, taking care of biodiversity, I can't do it alone. Julian can't do it alone. Offendi can't do it alone. We're going to have to work with not just marine scientists, we're going to have to work with people outside marine science as well. And I do see people reaching out nowadays. So that's why I am getting slightly optimistic just on that one point alone. If not, I would say there's no hope for us. Are you? Okay. And Fendi, how about for you? I have to continue what Gillian has said. Um, I think, yes, there are a lot of people integrating. And also, there are two things that are that are hopeful in, in that sense. Is that one, because of social media and also radio like, like BFM and whatnot, it reaches out to more people. And there are individ, individual, usually last time when I was younger, back then, uh, people say, okay, individuals can make can make a difference, but we always go, okay, clean up the beach, whatever. But now, with social media, individuals can make a lot of difference. There's a lot of people, you know, influencers and what social media influencers. So I think you can reach more people out there 
the message of conservation biodiversity. That's one. The second thing is that uh, uh, we've been finding from, from the scientific point of view, we've, we've been finding uh, some journals, uh, some publications coming out recently about bright spots that I was saying before. Yeah. Because previously we thought that it's gloom and doom, 90% uh, of coral reefs will die in by 2050 and whatnot. But we uh, recently we've been finding uh, journals have been publishing a few uh, good, like bright spots, like I was saying just now, right? Uh, one is in, in the east coast of Semenanjung Malaysia and other places, and they found refugias. Some corals are more resilient uh, to thermal stress and whatnot. So there are there are things there. So the science part is is slowly creeping up, but not might not be as fast as what Julian wants. <laughs> Uh, and <laughs> yeah, and also there's technology nowadays that they're trying in a small scale where they're trying to suck the CO2 from the atmosphere. So there'll be industri industrial plants that can actually suck out CO2 from the from the atmosphere, but they're still in the tryout phase. So, but uh, we don't know how if it can be made in a larger scale in time. Uh, and uh, it, there was one movie last time I saw was with Keanu Reeves saying that actually humans will just change at the precipice of when there's going to be a lot, uh, there's going to be death and total mortality and whatnot. So we hope that we don't stay at the precipice. When we reach the precipice, then only you want to change. So we're hoping that before you go up to the precipice, that's where you want to have that main, main change of humans. So that's the hope. Okay, I guess find ways to be part of the solution and not add to the problem pretty much as well, right? All right, well, thank you so much, all of you, uh, for joining me today. I've been speaking to Julian Hyde, the General Manager of Reef Check Malaysia, Dr. Julian Ui, a marine ecologist and senior lecturer at the University of Malaya, and Afendi Yang Amri, a coral reef ecologist at the University of Malaya and president of the Malaysian Society of Marine Sciences. If you'd like to find out more about the work that uh, Julian and his team does, do head to reefcheck.org.my. And if you'd like to find out more about about Gillian and Effendi's work, just head to teamchabitats.weebly.com. I think all the links are there to all the different projects that you guys are working on. So just head there to find out more and find out how you can help as well. And if you miss any part of our conversation today, you can always download the podcast at bfm.my earth, or you can find it on the BFM app. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.